From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Some Air Force programs may see delays because of coronavirus. The Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General David Goldfein, says the F-35 program is most likely to feel the effects of the virus. Breaking Defense reports the other programs Goldfein's watching include the KC-46 tanker, the B-21 bomber, and the T-7A trainer. Interior Department employees are getting a reminder from the top of the agency about coronavirus ethics. Chief of Staff Todd Willens tells employees the rules for official and personal conduct still apply in what he calls a more relaxed space at home. GovExec reports Willens' reminder follows a memo from the Office of Government Ethics suggesting those reminder memos. One of the largest government-wide acquisition vehicles will get new leadership at the end of the month. The director of the National Institutes of Health's Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, Bridget Gower, will retire May 1st. FCW reports NITAC will hire a deputy director before it replaces Gower. Chief information officers from across government meet regularly to strategize the response to the coronavirus. The Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent told you on this program Sunday some of the modernization work agencies did before the virus is paying off. Mark Foreman's Vice President of Digital Government for Unisys Federal. He's former eGov Administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Mark, my friend, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. Why are you say you're suggesting in this piece in FCW that this is the most challenging time ever for Chief Information Officers in government? Why do you think that's the case, Mark? Well, the speed and the magnitude of this event is just overwhelmed agencies and it's multifaceted. It's impacting major sectors of the economy in ways that we certainly haven't seen in our generation. And it's impacting key aspects of the government systems for stimulus, for public health systems, for emergency response that simply weren't built to scale at the magnitude that they're being asked to do so today. And then you overlay that with the people being sent home, I think a lot of agencies thought it would be for a couple of weeks. And now we know we're in a new normal working environment that requires a virtualized government set of not only infrastructure, but processes. How do we, how do you interview me? How do we communicate? Uh, this is a new way of doing business and it all depends on IT. I think what it, people may be it, maybe not missing, but what is not forefront of mind, Mark, this is going to be transformational. I mean, this is forcing the kinds of changes, visionary changes, that you and I have been talking about for almost 15 years. Uh, the, the cloud and the, the scalability of the cloud, you've been preaching about that for at least 10 years, maybe longer. Uh, the virtualized environments that you just alluded to, exactly the same thing. You've been talking about this stuff for a decade or more. What's the implication for that in what the government looks like and what the government needs to perform digitally in six months or a year or three years after we're well beyond coronavirus, but maybe potentially completely transformed? I think that's a great question. And uh, if we'd look back at the, some of the key disasters or emergencies that are crises at a multi-regional or national scale. You know, consider 9-11 uh, and what happened after that, a major restructuring of the government, uh, all built around how we were utilizing information, all geared towards increasing the speed, 
and the quality of the response. Preparedness. Let's consider the fact that uh, for at least now, I guess about uh, 14 years, uh, President Bush had identified the need to be prepared for a pandemic. Bill Gates and his foundation has talked about this uh, for several years. Uh, I think we now understand that much like we had a Cold War um, industrial-based preparedness, modeling, supply chains, uh, ability to shift the uh, production within your country to, to manage this, we're now going to have to make some big decisions, uh, not just as a government, but how we approach this. Is this a national supply chain and a national preparedness? Is it a global supply chain and a global preparedness? But there's no question in my mind. We're going to see a major structure being created to handle preparedness for a pandemic. And similarly, as you mentioned, we're going to be in a new way of working now. Just consider the notion of how agencies are set up. I think a lot of them spent the last uh, five or 10 years putting in place new offices, uh, cubicles that didn't have uh, space in between, uh, hoteling in a lot of agencies. A conference room built for four people can no longer hold four people. And that may be now uh, as much a transformation to creating a, a multifaceted virtual and physical workspace, not just in government, but around the economy. The we just third have, aspect of this. We just have a couple of minutes left, Mark. I apologize. You write in this piece in FCW about four areas where the government needs digital transformation quickly. Administering grants and loans, logistics accounting, financial and performance management, and home-based federal workforce. The financial management piece is the one that I think is the most interesting and maybe the most urgent. You write, to manage trillions of dollars of stimulus and public health spending, agencies will need extensive investment in open application programming interfaces, robotics and AI, or to overhaul their, finan their uh, uh, financial management systems. What are the puzzle pieces that agencies will need to assemble to be able to put together to realize that vision that you're outlining, Mark? The number one puzzle piece is replacing all these customized kind of convoluted interfaces that were built up over the last probably 25 years to match all the new modernization uh, customer facing websites and so forth that are being used for these economic stimulus programs and, and these public health programs. So uh, the way we do that now is a concept called API management, open application programming interfaces. Um, that means really looking at restructuring the way agencies manage their information. Um, give you an example. One of the programs that came out of the Transparency Act, of course, was the Data Act. There was a pilot program called the GRIP pilot. And in that concept, you needed an authoritative source of data. So the recipients of the recovery grants would send in their data to a data hub that data would be then the single authoritative source of data and using open, open APIs, myriad financial systems across the government, didn't have to have their own system anymore to collect redundant data and figure out the quality. They could go to one authoritative source and it would simplify it, reduce the cost, improve the quality, reduce the errors in accounting. That's the type of thing we're talking about. Mark, you always have more great ideas to discuss than I have time to discuss them with you. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for coverage of all these great issues that are, are coming about now.
Up next, 3D printing to respond to coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Department of Veterans Affairs collaborates. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Department of Veterans Affairs will 3D print masks and personal protective equipment for facilities that need them during the pandemic. The agency helps coordinate the 3D printing exchange and connects people with 3D printers to, de uh, to designs that work. Dr. Beth Ripley is the chair of the Veterans Health Administration 3D Printing Advisory Committee at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Ripley, thanks very much for coming on. You have a 3D printing network that you've been using for a long time now. How has the evolution of that network set you up to be able to deliver this PPE now? Well, the network has really been key in this effort. So the 3D printing network across VA comprises 33 hospitals. Um, we've grown in size from three to 33 over the past several years, but implicit in that network is this interconnectivity and collaboration. So we can on the fly call up across, you know, the country from Seattle to Minneapolis to Richmond and say, help me print this part, who has expertise in this type of engineering, et cetera. So having that interconnected web that is digital, that is not bound by physicality and being in the same space has really set us up for success here. Where's the visibility that, to know where capacity is and capability is, to know how much bandwidth you have basically to make a certain amount of stuff and what stuff is appropriate to make in a particular location? So we've worked hard to understand where our printers are uh, across the country. So we have a national uh, database of where the printers are, what types of printers, um, and what the technologies do. Um, we have over seven types of printer technologies and 90 different printers across that network that can print in anything from plastics to um, polymers to even metal coming soon. What did the printers that you're using now for the PPE make before you transitioned them to really start cranking out the, the PPE that you need across the system? Well, the PPE is being made uh, off of a few printers, and these are printers that can print in powder bed nylon. So nylon is a, a really strong, tough material uh, that is safe to contact patients or, in this case, um, frontline front staff. These printers were printing um, anything from brains, skulls, aortas. Um, they were our working horse printers for pre-surgical planning. I read, uh, I read that the uh, collaboration here is with the Federal Drug Administration, National Institutes of Health, 3D Print Exchange, and America Makes. Tell me what that collaboration looks like and what the pieces are for each of the organizations that you're collaborating with. Who's doing what to get to where you're going? Absolutely. So I think this is an amazing um, example of interagency collaboration and effort. So FDA, VA, and NIH um, came together early on and said, hey, we all have really great expertise in this area. We understand different aspects of it. For us, VA, we really understand the clinical aspects, uh, what is needed in the hospital in the front line. NIH, um, fantastic with the 3D print exchange. They've understood for years 
how to rapidly share digital files and catalog them for the masses, and FDA obviously with the, the regulatory prowess to keep us safe. So the three of us came together and said, let's join forces to make sure that we can look through all of the great emerging ideas out in the community, in the field, and find the ones that are the safest and the most effective um, and vet those so that people who want to help know which designs are safest. Meanwhile, America Makes, um, who is a partner with FDA, um, is one of the largest um, entities that understands where all the manufacturing capabilities of additive or 3D printing are in the country. And so they play the role of matchmaker. So we vet the designs, make sure they're safe um, and supply them. Then hospitals or healthcare um, companies or um, frontline staff, et cetera, can come to America Makes and say, this is what I need. And they can say, this is who can make it for you. So they're the matchmakers. It's, it sounds to me like the work that you're doing immediately at the, in the moment is what you need in a kind of a reactive way. We have this gap in our supply chain right now. This is how we're going to fill it. How are you thinking about this strategically, Beth? What, what comes next? What are you looking at you might, as a possibility that you might need to be printing or finding capacity to print six months from now or a year from now? How are you going to evolve this? That's a great question. I, I mean, I can actually show you now, you know, you know, I like to bring things. This is a, a 3D printed mask right now that we're working on um, and some visors. Uh, but we understand that as this um, pandemic goes on, there's going to be new supplies that we need. So we are looking, of course, at nasal swabs. We are looking at ventilator parts. And then we're trying to understand um, what else could it uh, run out, you know, or be low in the supply chain moving forward? So we've got several people scouting that. We have a really strong partnership with logistics to understand, you know, all of the intricacies of the medical supply chain. And we are planning for that, just as you said. Um, yeah. Dr. Ripley, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Up next, new opportunities for government contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, turning virus response into opportunity. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The coronavirus is generating challenges for agency information technology operations, but it's creating opportunities, too, for thinkers who are looking ahead to post-virus operations. Tony Scott is managing partner at Ridge Lane Limited Partners and former chief information officer of the United States. Tony, thanks very much for coming on. What are the opportunities that you see for organizations in government to do during this that will benefit them after coronavirus goes away? Well, Francis, as you can imagine, every agency is discovering uh, where they may have had weaknesses in uh, either online capabilities, self-service capabilities, support, um, and even applications where uh, they might not be up to the task in terms of volume or uh, the data that's available or the data sharing that can go on or needs to go on in times of uh, crisis. So 
I think the important thing is to take you know note of where those um, uh, issues exist and then quickly form a plan to upgrade and modernize um, uh, wherever those situations occurred. And uh, I see a lot of agencies uh, having those conversations already. Well, the thing that I think, uh, Suzette Kent, your successor, was on the program on Sunday morning. And my takeaway from my conversation with her was that this seems to be driving urgency, not just among agency leaders, but already some members of Congress who pay attention to this stuff are noticing, their constituents are telling them, we can't do this or that business with the government that we normally do from a citizen's perspective. And I wonder if that urgency might wind up being the best thing, the silver lining that comes out of this cloud, Tony. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, I'm fond of the expression, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> and uh, it's certainly the case uh, in case of COVID. You know, things like supply chain risk management, um, uh, you know, the availability of data, uh, infrastructure upgrades, all of those are under pressure um, in the current environment. And I think point out some great opportunities for modernization and, and changing the way we do IT. At an agency level, what's your sense of the best way to demonstrate success stories when this is over? Or, or maybe we'll still be in the middle of this when agencies have to go to Congress and say, this is why we need X number of dollars for a modernization effort. This is why we need X number of dollars for this customer service initiative and so on, and demonstrate that there's return on these investments that, that, there, that isn't just raw spending for spending's sake. Well, I think every agency is going to have examples of things that went well and worked, um, be, probably because they modernized or upgraded. And then they're going to have some examples of things that didn't go so well. And so I think it's important for agencies as they're talking to Congress and other uh, regulators to be uh, having that honest conversation and really point out the opportunities that are present when uh, you can do things the right way, uh, but it, it needs to be both. It needs to be the good, the bad, and frankly, the ugly in some cases. What's striking to me, I think, regarding the telework, the infrastructure and all of that, we heard some reports early on that there were some agencies that were struggling to get everybody online. They had capacity limits, they had bandwidth limits, and so on. Those horror stories seem to, I, I, they're not perpetuating. I, I can't say they've all been solved. I'm sure they haven't all been solved completely. But we're a month or six weeks into this now, Tony, and we don't hear these things continuing. What's your takeaway from that? Am I reading, is my glass too full or is that something that we should count as a success at this point? Well, I think overall it's a success. Um, this is an area where you can quickly increase capacity, generally speaking. You know, when I was at Microsoft, we had a snowstorm in Seattle like we had never had, and suddenly everybody had to uh, work from home uh, like they never had before. And within a few hours, we were able to increase our capacity. So I'm sure agencies are doing the same uh, things uh, here, but it's a, it's an object lesson in you know, how fast can you respond to something that you didn't anticipate and stretching the uh, abilities of your organization. 
If you were in your former job, I'm not asking you to sit in for Suzette by any stretch of the imagination, Tony, but what would you be looking at today? How would you be guiding the agency CIOs to look for opportunities to change business models, to change business operations post-COVID? Well, I think one of the big opportunities still, and it's something I worked on uh, when I was there, and we haven't solved it all completely yet, is the ability for agencies to interchange information when they need it. Um, in the current environment, uh, we see it with nursing homes, for example. Even at the state and local level, you know, having an inventory of nursing homes and how many people are there and something like that is just essential. There's some agency in the U.S. federal government that has that information, but is it available to all of the right people who are first responders and, and dealing with uh, some of those issues that are um, uh, prevalent with, with seniors with uh, health issues and so on? Just one example, but there's a lot of other data that a government institution has that would be essentially useful or absolutely useful for another agency and making it easy for them to interchange that information, I think, is one of the critical opportunities uh, we should really be looking at. Tony Scott, thanks very much. It's great to have you. Good to talk with you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. Tonight's event spotlight, the Burr Biz Veteran and Military Spouse Resource Event, features virtual networking and resources for veterans and their spouses. The event will include speakers like New York Times bestselling author Gary Vaynerchuk and many more. The event's happening virtually Wednesday, April 29th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. You can sign up at BurrBiz.com. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.